The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I want to start today with something I've mentioned before, but I think it's um, uh, really time to have a more detailed conversation about. And this is what I'm calling and some others are calling coronavirus vaccine alarmism, which really has to stop. Now, I want to be really clear. Coronavirus vaccine alarmism. I'm not talking about anti-vax people here. I'm not talking about people who say the vaccine is unsafe or that it's microchipped or that Bill Gates has some nefarious role to play or that it's a population control device or that it modifies your DNA. That's anti-vax. What I'm talking about here is what I guess makes sense to call vaccine alarmism, which is people who are fine with vaccines as far as we know, but the sort of disproportionate focus on the vaccines aren't 100 percent effective. we don't know if anything can change when you were vaccinated and other types of uh, talking points that are inadvertently maybe reducing interest in the vaccine and by so doing are actually going to have the effect of extending the pandemic. The New York Times had a great article about this called Vaccine Alarmism by David Leonhardt looking at the costs of vaccine alarmism. And in the article, David points out that there are hot takes and opinion pieces being widely published right now that start with something like, listen, the coronavirus vaccine is not 100 percent effective. If you are vaccinated, you might still be able to transmit the disease to other people. The variants might make the vaccines irrelevant and no one's behavior can change even when vaccinated for a really long time without making it clear what needs to change for people's behavior to be able to change. And when you kind of take it all together, it starts to sound like, well, the pandemic will never end and the vaccine changes nothing for me. So why even go through the hassle of looking for an appointment and getting a vaccine, especially if it's not 100 percent effective? And you can still transmit the disease and you can't change your behavior in any way for the foreseeable future. Now, if you break down, it it actually functions much like a conspiracy theory. You hear it all together and it's like, wow, yeah, that that that's a lot. But if you break down each piece into its uh, component parts, you find that while there is some truth to each individual claim, there is so much missing context and you end up with a completely distorted view about vaccines. Let's actually do it and break it down. For example, the vaccine is not 100 percent effective. OK, yeah, that's true. But with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines at 92 to 95 percent effective, these are some of the most effective vaccines in the history of vaccination. And importantly, not only are they 92 to 95 percent effective, they are almost 100 percent effective at preventing serious covid. And so uh, when you start hearing, well, it's not 100 percent effective. I don't know. That is extraordinarily misleading. And it is a uh, huge, huge, huge additional amount of information you need beyond they're not 100 percent effective. They're not 100 percent effective, but they're of the most effective vaccines we've ever had. And they are almost 100 percent effective at preventing severe covid, which is what's killing people. OK, next. It is true that vaccinated people may still be contagious. What that means is that the phase three trials on which the vaccines were approved didn't look at the effect of the vaccines on transmissibility. Uh, However, early data from Israel suggests that what was expected is what is happening, which is that these vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, do reduce transmission. Again, it's not been studied and reported in a peer reviewed study, and we want to be careful. But the early information from Israel corroborates what was expected, which is that we expected the vaccines would cut transmission. Hasn't been studied in the way that it needs to be studied. So uh, then we get to even if you get a vaccine, you can't change your behavior for a really, really long time. Okay, let's dig into that in more detail. It is true that just getting a shot 
doesn't mean that right away you should be doing anything differently, particularly if nobody else in your circles is vaccinated. But once you are fully vaccinated, meaning you're seven days past your second dose, the risk from being with other fully vaccinated people, especially if they work from home, is very, very low. And again, with everyone being vaccinated, you are reducing the risk below that of the flu because the vaccines are so effective at preventing severe covid. So does it make the risks zero? No, it doesn't. But nothing has zero risk during flu season, particularly with flu vaccines, only 20 to 50 percent effective. Uh, we are accepting a certain level of risk when we're around people during that time. Increasingly, virologists and immunologists and others are understanding that the vaccine is being undersold. Dr. Muj Zevik, who's a virologist, said in the New York Times piece, our discussion about vaccines has been poor, really poor. As scientists, we need to be more careful what we say and how it would be understood by the public. And the focus has been uncertainty, possible bad news, and it's making people not want the vaccine. The vaccine isn't a catch all. Do whatever the hell you want. Sort of get out of jail free card. Uh, the policies in grocery stores will be for masks for some time to come. Also at doctor's offices and other, lots of other places, no doubt. But let's be more realistic. A small group of fully vaccinated people who work from home can responsibly choose to accept the small risk of being together. And part of the problem and part of the reason why we need all of the fear, uncertainty and doubt to be the top line is that so many people either don't understand a lot of this stuff or can't use sound judgment. So everybody has to be extra careful. But the reality is the more people that get the vaccine more quickly, the sooner normality or something like it can return. So we have to stop underselling the vaccine. We have to make clear that a lot of these catch all umbrella statements are uh, uh, making people disinterested in the vaccine. And that's only going to prolong the pandemic. No one is advocating irresponsible behavior. But some of these headlines that are floating around are a disaster and they are making it so that so many people don't want the vaccine. I'll have an example of this later today for you uh, in the voicemail segment. For the time being, let's move on to a few other things. The Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is not the law. The Green New Deal hasn't been passed uh, in the House and Senate and signed by the president. The Green New Deal isn't policy anywhere. And yet Republicans more and more are blaming the Green New Deal for the power failure in Texas that we saw over the last week to 10 days. How is this possible? This would be like blaming Medicare for all for a problem when Medicare for all isn't the law in the United States. Here is an example. Cancun Cruz, a Republican Texas senator, Ted Cruz, who recently fled over the U.S.-Mexico border with his family to Mexico when the power went out at his house in Texas, only to come back 20 hours later after his escape attempt blew up in his face. He was on Sean Hannity's Fox News program last night saying that what is to blame for the power outages in Texas is the Green New Deal. Take a look. We just came off of a very difficult week where the grid failed four million Texans. And so we need to have a serious examination about why that was, why the grid came short. But one of the major elements of that is actually the policy that Schumer is pushing for the whole country, which is the Green New Deal. You look at Texas right now, about 25% of our electricity capacity is wind. And yet, in the middle of this storm, that capacity dropped all the way down to 2%. You want to talk about reliability. The, the reality was in the cold, the wind turbines froze and, and the power generation wasn't there. Ted Cruz manages to squeeze about six lies into that short 40 second segment that I played for you. It's a great um, uh, illustration of the problem we're talking about. So let's talk through it. First of all, what Texas did over the last 10, 15 years with their power grid, it's nothing like what the Green New Deal would do. Ted Cruz wants you to believe that Texas went all in on green energy and now has power failures. And it's a preview of what happens to the whole country if the whole country goes in the direction of green energy. Texas did something that's the opposite of the Green New Deal. Texas isolated their power grid from the rest of the country to avoid so-called federal government meddling and interference in their energy market. 
former Governor Rick Perry talked about it last week. We've heard from a number of different people bragging about we are an independent grid. The Green New Deal doesn't call for that. And so what happened was that when the grid was stressed and we'll talk about why it was stressed, they couldn't get power from anywhere else. It has nothing to do with what is in the Green New Deal. And of course, the Green New Deal hasn't passed. Second, Ted says wind energy is 25 percent of power generation capacity in Texas. This is in theory accurate. Texas can, in theory, get up to 24.8 percent of power from wind. But that's seasonal in the winter. It's only a fraction of that. Last week, when the power outages happened, 25 percent of actual electricity was not coming from wind power. But more importantly, third, when Ted says that energy generation capacity from wind plummeted during the storm, that's true. But it also plummeted even more for natural gas, coal and nuclear on which Texas is significantly more reliant. And the reason is not because of wind power versus nuclear versus coal or gas. It's because Texas chose not to winterize any of their power generation. So they've got an isolated grid that can't uh, pull from any other part of the country and they opt not to winterize. As I've said a dozen times in the last week, back in 2011, Texas had similar outages. A report was compiled explaining how you prevent this in the future. And they just didn't do it. And yes, some wind farms froze because they weren't winterized. But the bigger problem was frozen instruments at coal, natural gas and nuclear power plants, which are not winterized. Everything Ted Cruz is saying is a lie. Now, you might see this and write it off and say, David, how can the Green New Deal be to blame for anything? It hasn't been passed. It hasn't been made law. No one would fall for this. And yet they do. Just look at Twitter, look at Reddit, look at the quote debates happening on cable news right now. This stuff works on lots of Republicans. When Obamacare was being debated before it passed, there were Republicans blaming Obamacare for not being able to get medical procedures. It wasn't the law yet. Uh, protesters doing things last summer were being blamed on this is Biden's America. Trump was president. Millions of them fell for it. And this is sort of part of how they blamed Antifa for the January 6th insurrection incited by Trump, carried out by Trumpists. Antifa had nothing to do with it. So unless time travel is a factor that I somehow don't understand and that we've not yet been able to explain and what we're talking about is time moves in a different way than we conceive of it, there is no possible way that the Green New Deal is responsible, but it doesn't matter to them. They are either falling for it or knowingly accepting something that's untrue in order to try to point fingers elsewhere. Uh, it's disgusting, but it represents a uh, barrier in actually getting things done, properly winterizing these uh, electrical grids and continuing to move to green energy, which in many ways is actually more robust in its ability to resist changes in climate and weather. Uh, I don't know what the future is of this talking point, but my instinct is that it's going to be around for a while. And if and when Joe Biden actually gets around to moving forward on his Green New Deal infrastructure, plan, green infrastructure plan, rather, which takes elements from the Green New Deal, I would assume that many of these Republicans are going to fight it by saying Green New Deal type stuff is responsible for what happened in Texas in 2021. It'll be untrue, of course, but it's clearly a talking point. They're going to repeat and repeat and repeat. Let me know what you think. I'm on Twitter at dpacman. The David Pakman Show at davidpacman.com. One of our sponsors today is Nebbia, the creator of the world's most innovative showerhead. It uses only about half the water that other showerheads do, saving you money, helping the environment. But it's actually a lot more powerful than other showerheads on the market. It has twice the coverage of other showerheads. The water sprays with a ton of pressure. I've been using it in my bathroom at home. I love it. Only took a few minutes to set up really easy. And it's been a totally different experience than any other showerhead I've used. I can get in and out of the shower way quicker now because of how powerful it is. It only takes a few seconds to get completely rinsed off. So I was actually amazed that it's only using about half as much water. Nebbia also offers a number of shower accessories like shelves and curtains, which match perfectly with the design of the showerhead. 
The shower head starts at just one ninety nine, but the first hundred people to go to Nebia dot com slash Pacman and use code Pacman will get fifteen percent off all Nebia products. One of our sponsors is privacy.com. They're giving you five dollars when you sign up for their completely free service at privacy.com slash Pacman. I've been using privacy for a little over a year now. You've heard me talk about it before. It's a lifesaver, and here's how it works. Takes just a couple of minutes to set up. Anytime you buy something online or on the phone, instead of actually using your real credit card number, the privacy app and the browser plugin let you give each company a randomized virtual credit card number that you create out of thin air. It'll even autofill the card number with one click, and the payment is taken out of your checking account without the merchant ever knowing your real information. So this allows you to keep your banking information secure, but also to take control of your finances. You can create up to 12 of these virtual credit cards a month. You can set spending limits. You can freeze them. You can delete them anytime you want. So when you do this, it means you're not going to be charged when you don't want to be because you can destroy the virtual card number right after using it, which, for instance, I love using free trials because I know I won't be charged when the trial is over. If I use a virtual credit card number, you're keeping your identity private by not telling companies who you are. You're keeping your bank or credit card info protected against data breaches and identity theft. And it's free. And like I said, you'll get five dollars to spend when you sign up at privacy.com slash Pacman. You can find the link in the podcast notes. The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. Keep grabbing those uh, memberships at joinpacman.com, our number one funding source at the show. Whether you listen to the podcast or watch the YouTube channel, however you consume the content, TikTok even, can you imagine? Uh, we are mostly supported by your memberships. You can sign up right now at joinpacman.com. After quite literally years of pushing for this, the issue of Donald Trump's taxes has made it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court yesterday has cleared the way for Donald Trump's taxes to be released. Very important detail to be released to New York prosecutors, not to the public or to the House of Representatives. You might remember that Donald Trump said during the 2016 campaign that he would release his taxes as soon as all of his audits were over. Now, in fact, it's been twenty two hundred days almost since Donald Trump said he'd release his tax returns. He first said it in February of 2015. He is not under if it's even true that he's under audit. Still, it wouldn't be for all of his uh, years of taxes, even if you believe that he shouldn't release his tax returns while they are being audited, which is a question he could release the ones that are not being audited. We uh, don't know if there were any audits. But it was all a lie in the sense that Donald Trump never had any intention of releasing his tax returns because he clearly calculated he made the decision that whatever damage would be done by not releasing them would be vastly outweighed by the damage if he did release them. Well, now, after numerous appeals and legal arguments, the Supreme Court says that indeed the records might be shielded from public disclosure. But it is time for Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance to get those Trump tax returns for the purposes of his investigations into hush money payments made by Donald Trump and other possible financial fraud. So this finally is a step closer to prosecutors getting the documents. It may or may not be a step closer to these documents being made public. Now, we all know anytime documents change hands the possibility of a leak becomes a reality. How likely these would be to leak from the Manhattan D.A. when it would be known that that's who had them. That remains to be seen, but it's happening. There are no more appeals to make, as was reported by NBC's Pete Williams on MSNBC yesterday. Quote, the New York grand jury will see Trump's tax returns almost immediately. This is the end of the road for the president. So a few different things here. It's absurd that it even took this long 
and Trump kept appealing on different grounds. And when a court would decide against him, he would immediately appeal again. It's gotten to the Supreme Court. It took a long time. Trump's not even in. Uh, he, he's been talking about releasing his tax returns since before being in office. He's now gone. And this is only finally moving forward now. Whether we ever see the taxes at this point, I don't know. And it's less relevant. It's more about whether Donald Trump can actually get away with hiding his taxes forever and from from everyone. And it seems that at least the from everyone is becoming a hard no as prosecutors are going to get them and the grand jury is going to look at them. Now, as I've said before, Donald Trump's legal expenses for the foreseeable future are going to be formidable if he pays his lawyers, which is always a caveat with Donald Trump. And meanwhile, just as a reminder, there are still conspiracy theorists, mostly of the QAnon persuasion, who believe that we are just days from Donald Trump getting back in office. March 4th is the new date that many of them have set. They believe, as we've talked about a week or two ago, that due to a technicality relating to the fact that inauguration used to be on March 4th before being moved to January 20th, that somehow Donald Trump is going to go back to power and back to being president on March 4th. This decision by the Supreme Court for the very conspiratorial types is an attempt at interfering with Trump getting back in power on March 4th. How it has anything to do with it, I don't know. Obviously, Trump was never going to get back in power on March 4th. But when it doesn't happen on March 4th, many of these QAnon types will say that it was because of this Supreme Court decision meant to. I don't even know, but it's apparently a big factor in what's going on. So we'll wait and see on all of this stuff, including if and when the tax returns ever become public. The decision did cause Donald Trump to explode. And that's what I want to talk about next. We have gone over the decision from the Supreme Court from yesterday, which said you can't shield your tax returns from Manhattan prosecutors anymore. Donald Trump, that's the decision made by the Supreme Court. The documents with reportedly almost no delay will be turned over to Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance and will be made part of the grand jury that Cyrus Vance is running. Okay, Donald Trump exploded at news of this, putting out a statement on the, quote, continuing political persecution of President Donald Trump. This is a very funny letter in which Donald Trump alternates between referring to himself in the first person and the third person. It's riddled with lots of other wacky things. And I want to go through it with you because it is actually incredible that this is a letter from a former president of the United States, it's almost like a a third grader wrote a joke letter. Let's get right into it. Quote, this investigation is a continuation of the greatest political witch hunt, witch hunt capitalized. We'd never know why in the history of our country, whether it was the never ending thirty two million dollar Mueller hoax, which, remember, recovered far more than the thirty two million that it cost. Trump goes on to say, which already investigated everything that could possibly be investigated. Russia, Russia, Russia where there was a finding of no collusion. That's, of course, untrue uh, or two ridiculous, crazy Nancy inspired impeachment attempts where I was found not guilty. It never ends. So now for more than two years, New York City has been looking at almost every transaction I've ever done, including seeking tax returns, which were done by among the biggest and most prestigious law and accounting firms in the United States. Now, remember, Uh, When you have someone do your taxes, you are always signing off and saying you are warranting that the information you give to them is true. They are merely completing the taxes based on what you tell them. So the idea that the prestige of the accounting firm, when I go and I tell our accountant, uh, here's how much we made, here's how much we spent. The accountant has me sign something where I where, where I am saying It is my responsibility if this information is untrue. If I'm lying about the value of a building or whatever, that's on me. That's not on the accountant. The prestige of the accounting firm seems irrelevant. Okay, continuing. Uh, 
The Tea Party was treated far better by the IRS than Donald Trump. The Supreme Court never should have let this fishing expedition happen, but they did. Now, what's funny is Trump puts fishing expedition in quotes that suggests it's Trump who's skeptical that it was actually a fishing expedition. Trump doesn't seem to understand what quotes mean. Going on to say this is something which has never happened to a president before. It is all Democrat inspired in a totally Democrat location, New York City and state completely controlled and dominated by a heavily reported enemy of mine, Governor Andrew Cuomo. Now, if Trump has any evidence that Cuomo is involved in any of this, he should release it. There is no evidence I've seen so far. Trump continues. These are attacks by Democrats willing to do anything to stop the almost 75 million people, the most votes by far ever gotten by a sitting president who voted for me in the election, an election which many people and experts feel that I won. I agree. So Trump still can't get away from the it was stolen stuff that incited the riot in the first place. The new phenomenon of headhunting prosecutors and AGs who try to take down their political opponents using the law as a weapon is a threat to the very foundation of our liberty. That's what is done in third world countries. Even worse are those who run for prosecutorial or attorney general offices in far left states and jurisdictions pledging to take out a political opponent. That's fascism, not justice. Funny that Trump talks about third world countries and fascism. Trump's presidency and his authoritarianism was more reminiscent of that than anything we're seeing right now. Trump goes on to say, and that is exactly what they are trying to do with respect to me except that the people of our country won't stand for it. In the meantime, murders and violent crime are up in New York City by record numbers and nothing is done about it. Yeah, mostly under Trump's presidency. Our elected officials don't care. All they focus on is the persecution of President Donald J. Trump. I will fight on just as I have for the last five years, even before I was successfully elected, despite all of the election crimes that were committed against me. We will win. And it's unclear what exactly Trump believes he is going to win. To me, this is the rantings of a highly triggered, but in particular, very scared individual. Remember, there are political consequences to some degree of a presidential candidate not releasing their tax returns. Trump knew that and he still decided releasing them is worse for me than keeping them private keeping them secret and being criticized for it. That means Trump knows the content of the tax returns is not good for him. And that's why he's acting in this way. Uh, what do you think is in the tax returns? I've explained my thoughts many times before. Uh, and at this point, do you think it even matters? We'll have more coverage of this on our Instagram page, David Pakman show. And if you want to see the level of anti-vax emails that we are now getting, check my personal Instagram, david.pakman, where I posted a really extreme anti-vax email that I received this morning. Quick break, much more coming up. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. A lot of the shirts you see me wearing on YouTube are actually made by a company called Teddy Stratford. I love these shirts, and that's why I asked them to be a sponsor of the show. It really is the most innovative shirt you can buy because most slim fit button up shirts give you this weird stretched out gap in the chest where the buttons are. You don't get that with the Teddy Stratford shirts because all of their shirts come with a patented zipper hidden beneath the buttons, which prevents the chest from stretching apart like that. But most importantly, just overall, it makes the shirt fit much better and look better. The carefully designed shirt is also cut in a way that improves the look of your upper body physique. It has a really nice, elegant, close fit that other shirts don't really give you. It also has a specially designed collar that won't fall down and lay flat, which I love. The difference all around with these shirts really is noticeable. Go check them out at davidpackman.com slash Teddy. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15% off your first order. If you use the coupon code Pacman at checkout, that's P-A-K-M-A-N. One of our sponsors is Vincero Watches, giving you 15% off. A high quality wristwatch is the perfect way to elevate your style. 
own at least one watch that makes you feel great when you put it on. You can often see me wearing my Vincero watch on the show. Mine is the gunmetal vessel model. I'm a big fan of the metallic look of the face of the watch. I like the silicone strap. You won't find a better made watch for this good a price anywhere else. When you put it on, you know you got more than you paid for. Vincero believes in crafting super quality watches from high end materials, but selling them at fair prices, which is why they have over twenty six thousand five star reviews and they stand behind every watch they make with a one year return policy and five year warranty. They'll give you 15 percent off everything in their store and free shipping when you go to davidpackmancom slash watch and use coupon code Pacman. You can find the URL in the podcast notes. Just make sure to use promo code Pacman. Welcome back to the David Pacman Show. Today, we're going to be speaking with Chris Smalls, who is a former Amazon employee who has become a leader of the e-commerce and labor rights movement. Chris is going to tell us about his work for and his subsequent firing from Amazon. Now, of course, we haven't been able to independently confirm uh, Chris's story, but it is a compelling one. And I am more than open to having someone from Amazon on to talk to us about the things that Chris is going to tell us. Uh, Chris, you have a background that started similar to mine, which is your background is in retail. I worked at the now defunct Circuit City when uh, I was much younger. You worked at Walmart and Target. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about your work for uh, for Amazon. How did you come to work at Amazon? I started working at Amazon back in 2015. I came in entry level. Um, I came from before Amazon. I was working at a grocery distribution warehouse overnight graveyard shift. It was unionized, but uh, the union contract just wasn't uh, what I expected it to be. So I thought that I have a better opportunity at Amazon. I opened up the first building in Carteret, New Jersey, EWR9. Uh, stayed there for about two years, and then I transferred to BDL2, Connecticut. And then my last facility was JFK Staten Island. So I've been with the company for almost four and a half years. And what was your day to day? Like what kind of roles were you in? So when I became when I first got hired, I was entry level. I was a uh, what they call a picker. Uh, I my job was to pick customer items in a timely manner within the hour uh, hourly rate of about uh, back then it was about 250 items an hour. Now it's a lot more. It's about 400 now. But I did that for about six to seven months. And then I was promoted up to a process assistant, better known as an assistant manager. And I was in that position for the last four years. Now, as an assistant manager, were you supervising pickers? Yes, I actually uh, was supervising pickers uh, and then it expanded to a different operation, which now I was uh, in control of three different departments. So picking. Uh, counting and also uh, um, floor health. So floor health was also a part of the department as well. Okay, so many people in my audience have probably seen the articles that talk about the conditions for the pickers, and they include things like um, you're not allowed to go to the bathroom, and there's this constant pressure to pick more and more and more, and the conditions are bad, and your brakes are monitored down to the minute. Talk a little bit about what what of that was true when you were there. Is any of it not true? No, it's 100 percent true. Amazon is ran completely off of metrics and numbers. Uh, they calculate everything, and it's it's actually calculated down to the second. You hmm. know, the second you stop scanning the item. Uh, your time accum accumulates a, a time off task. So um, I was a part of that machine. I, I very much had to monitor my associates in my department. But um, like I said, I was just a supervisor that um, related to them. So uh, they respected the fact that I wasn't that type of supervisor that would be hard on them if they came back late from break or whatever the case may be, because I know uh, how massive these buildings are and how the working conditions can take a toll on your body. Now, were you pressured, even though you weren't pressuring the pickers, maybe the way that you would be expected to? Did that cause a problem for you? Absolutely. I mean, um, uh, 
for the most part, it caused a problem with my own personal career growth because obviously management um, knew that I would never side with them when it came to certain things like that. Um, you know, I was kind of like the black sheep of, of the uh, supervisors. Everybody knew that I had a backbone and um, I always spoke up for what was right. And I always sided with the employees at entry level because that's where I started from. I never forgot where I came from and uh, it didn't bother me. Uh, but it definitely hindered my career there. You know, I applied for a salary manager position there 49 times and I, mm. I was denied every last one of them. And it's probably because the fact that they knew that I would never be fully uh, pro Amazon. Were you what reason were you given the 49 times why you weren't going to be given the salaried manager? Well, woof, on my own personal experiences, it was it's, it was basically bogus. Um, a lot of the interviews were set up. Uh, for me to fail from the beginning. A lot of them, the interviews, they already knew who they wanted in those positions uh, before I even applied. So it was a combination of a lot of different things. Um, also, there was, uh, you know, letters and, and management above me that didn't like me as a person, you know, whatever the case may be. So it was a lot of different things of why um, I didn't get those positions. And I believe it's systemic, you know, systemic racism that exists inside Amazon as well. Over a million and a half employees worldwide, and only and then twenty six years of existence, only eight percent of the management is black or brown. So that just tells you right there: the higher up the food chain, the less likely you know you, you are to be colored. So um, I even believe this for the first time this past year, they have one black woman that's on the the senior team. Hmm. You know, so that just tells you right there: this, the chances of me getting promoted up the ladder was slim. And Chris, I don't, I'm not I'm not familiar with the numbers you're citing. So I'm curious when you say eight percent, is that globally or in the United States? That's globally. That's globally. OK. Do you know what it is in the United States? <laughs> I, I, I would guess it would be a lot less than that. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure um, it's not too many of us up at the top. You know, once again, in this this company's 26 or 27 years of existence for the first time ever, they put one black woman on the, the senior team. Uh, the S team, they call it. Um, so that just tells you right there. They're way behind the eight ball when it comes to diversity, uh, when it comes to management. Were there ways in which uh, working at Amazon f was better than when you did actual customer facing retail like Walmart and Target? Of course, you know, um, I worked at competitors and I worked during the holiday season. Um, and, you know, nothing's worse than working Black Friday right. at a Target. When um, you got customers trying to get their items and, and, and the lines are backed up and everything's chaos, chaos. So uh, working in the warehouse, um, you have to deal with customers. It's a benefit. But um, once again, it's also calisthenics. You know, so I used to tell my, my employees, new hires, uh, if you have a gym membership, you might want to cancel it. <laughs> now, um, ultimately, you, you were fired by Amazon. Can you talk about why? Yeah, absolutely. You know, last year, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, uh, late February, early March, um, when this virus came into the country in Seattle, uh, killing the senior citizens over there. I, I was afraid over here in the East Coast and I tried to raise health and safety concerns going through the proper channels. Um, and after doing that for a few weeks, uh, I, I tried uh, organizing workers inside the, the warehouse, sitting in the cafeteria 10 hours a day off the clock. I'm telling many as many workers as I can after I learned in the meeting with my bosses that uh, we had cases in the facility and they didn't want me to tell anybody not to cause a panic or disrupt business. Um, so I felt that I had to take further action. And after a whole week of advocating, I'm pleading, going back and forth with the general manager of the building, um, they decided to quarantine just me out of everybody else. And that didn't make sense to me. Not even the person I ride to work with, none of the people in my department that was around the person who was infected. Um, it was just me. So I knew they were using me as a target. And um, as a result, I held a protest on March 30th uh, outside of my facility. And then two hours later, I was terminated over the phone. Uh, a week after that, uh, Jeff Bezos and his top general counsel, David Sapolsky, uh, they tried to run a smear campaign on me, calling me not smart or articulate and make me the whole face of the whole unionizing efforts. 
So there's so. a couple different things here, right? I mean, the, one is that the part about infections at the facility and the other is trying to organize uh, the the, uh, the the workers. So let's talk about the first one first. Sure. So you were told by by managers not to talk about the fact that there were infected employees. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so on March 24th, we had uh, our daily sync meeting, which we have every single day. And that's pretty much giving us the rundown for the rest of the day and how it's supposed to go. But on that day, it was different. Uh, that day, they told us we had a case that was actually two weeks prior uh, for the first time. And they pretty much told uh, the supervisors not to say anything. And I just felt that was uh, wrong. I felt like I, I had to say something that took my stance there. That was the last day I worked for Amazon. So that was a supervisor's meeting and you guys were told not to mention the case to the employees you supervise. Absolutely. OK. And then separately, but around the same time, you were working to organize the workers there. And what was the point of the organization to approach management about virus related matters or to collectively bargain on salary and benefits? Well, actually, that was the first time I learned about it. Um, I haven't even started organizing yet. That was March 24th. Um, I, what I was doing was behind the scenes. I was sending out emails to the governor, to uh, Governor Cuomo's office, to the CDC department of Manhattan, now uh, media. I was trying to fight behind the scenes. Uh, it wasn't until after that meeting, the next day when I came back to the facility, um, I told my supervisor I won't be working for the remainder of the week. And that's when I started to go in the cafeteria and tell all the workers that I, I came in contact with the truth, that you possibly been working around somebody who tested positive. Um, from that point forward, what we did every morning, uh, a small group of us marched into the general manager's office and voice our concerns. Yeah. Uh, it has this thing called uh, voice of associates where associates are allowed to write on the board uh, their complaints. So I say, you know what? Here is your your voice of associates board uh, right here in person. Uh, here's our complaints. We wanted the building to just be simply closed down and sanitized. We would have came back to work. No problem. And that's all we wanted in the beginning. But obviously a lot more now. What was officially given to you as the reason why you were being let go? Oh, they claimed that I violated socially distanced policies that none of us ever read or ever, you know, implemented. You know, huh. as a supervisor, I'm supposed to receive the policies and relay that information, and I never did. So they didn't exist because they didn't know what we were dealing with, you know, and that's all. Um, it, it was okay to understand that they didn't know what they were dealing with and how to de uh, handle it. But uh, to ignore the fact that workers with underlying health conditions, you know, mothers that were pregnant, uh, parents that have children at home, including myself, were afraid to come to work and refuse to listen to us. That's a whole nother story. When it comes to what you're fighting for now, if I understand correctly, you're looking to organize a sort of a non-union nationwide group of workers. Am I right that you're going the non-union approach and what made you decide to go about it that way? Um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I feel like with Amazon, it's such a large entity and uh, um, a large business that, uh, you know, it actually would be kind of difficult for one union to try to unionize the entire nation. Uh, we're talking 800,000 workers. So I felt like an organization that has a worker driven committee uh, would be more beneficial for Amazon workers, uh, something that's worker employee controlled uh, with union like structure. You know, I feel like that's the best way possible. It's sort of like cutting out the middleman. Uh, no, you know, no union dues or whatever the case may be. But workers are allowed to sit in on negotiation, negotiate their own contracts. And then now we all we also have enough power. Um, workers power that if Congress say you know, you're an essential worker and you have to go to work in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Uh, we're going to say, no, we're not going to work until we have, you know, a PPE provided by the company, hazard pay, medical leave, all these things that we're demanding uh, before we consider ourselves essential workers. So that's, that's interesting. So absent the act, the the actual union with the dues, sort of like at, at what level would you see this working? Would it be at the individual facility level? Would it be at a regional level or how do you how would you structure that? Yeah, you know, I thought about it and I think uh, regional would be better 
um, if you had just one, uh, you know, you break down the country into regions, uh, you have a committee, a workplace committee um, that represents that region because we know the cost of living in different parts of the country is different. Uh, these committees negotiate the contract and there you go. Uh, that be able to, you know, take care of the mass of the employees that work for Amazon. Uh, with unionizing, you have to do it facility by facility. And that's going to be a longer process. As you can see, what they're doing in Alabama, they're prolonging it, they're union busting. Yeah. Um, they're firing workers, they're hiring workers. They're doing all these things to disrupt it. Uh, but if you have a workplace committee, that's something that's built internally. Uh, it's going to be hard to uh, bust that up. Did you ever see or experience um, or become aware of sort of like not union busting, but maybe union prevention activity by Amazon? Absolutely. Though, well, as a supervisor, you know, I watched, uh, you know, those training videos. We had to take tests, assessment tests. They try to mix in uh, certain questions that uh, obviously related to union busting. But um, I never applied them. You know, like I said, I was. I'm always uh, on the employee uh, entry level position side, so I never applied these things. You know, obviously there was management that dealt, that you know applied that, and they still do. Um, but you know, you just have to understand what you're dealing with. You're dealing with a company that does that's anti-union uh, from the beginning, and now we see that it's very much necessary that they are unionized. Yeah, I remember in my early days at Circuit City, they sat me down and mixed in with training videos about like how to use the sales systems and what the process is for requesting time off. They throw in videos about, you know, we want to maintain a direct relationship with employees. Right. We don't want any intermediaries or middlemen. And it's, it was very it was very sophisticated, in fact, the way that it was done. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah the same thing. You know, uh, they mix in the questions with like safety and hazmat and all this training. And I'm like, well. You know, you read between the lines as you right. busted. Yeah. Uh, we've been speaking with Chris Smalls, former Amazon employee, now a leader of the e-commerce labor rights movement. Chris, I really appreciate your time and we're going to continue following your great work. Absolutely. I appreciate you guys for giving me a chance to tell my story. The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. If you are anything like me, you probably aren't thrilled with the idea of going into a doctor's office right now. And thankfully, there is a practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care from the comfort of your home. It's a service called Steady MD. They're one of our sponsors. You take a quiz, you get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your health needs. You have a one hour video call with your new doctor. You establish a meaningful relationship with them. And after that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone or video chat. This is not a random doctor on call. Each doctor at steady MD has a limited number of patients, so they actually have time to listen to you. You get the personal attention that you deserve. They can do almost everything an in-person doctor can do perform medical evaluations, talk to you about health concerns, send prescriptions to your home or local pharmacy and anything they can't do online. They'll quickly set you up with an in-person provider to do things like blood tests. As an example, you don't need insurance. It's only ninety nine bucks a month with no other fees or copays. There are so many practical advantages to using steady MD for primary care, and it's also so much more affordable. Go to steadymd.com slash Pacman to take the free quiz and see which doctor is right for you. I took their quiz. They matched me with a doctor who specializes in my particular health needs. The doctor they gave me is a really perfect fit for me. Again, that's steadymd.com slash Pacman. There's no risk, no commitment to get started. That's steadymd.com forward slash P-A-K-M-A-N. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19, and they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell, and that's actually why I reached out to them 
about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you, and I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky, lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. The David Pakman Show at davidpackman.com. So we expected it to happen, and it finally is. My Pillow CEO Mike Lindell, who I refer to as Mike Pillow, has been sued by Dominion Voting Systems because of his continued and persistent bogus, weaponized election fraud claims. Mike Lindell is a right-wing pillow manufacturer based in Minnesota. He mostly advertises on right-wing media like Fox News and Newsmax and OAN or some combination of those. He became close to the president when he showed up at the White House relatively early in the coronavirus pandemic and was part of a sort of promotional tour in which Donald Trump announced that uh, these various companies that love Trump will be retooling their factories to make N95 masks. We don't really know uh, if or when that actually happened. But in any case, at his speech thanking Donald Trump for his involvement in making PPE, Mike Lindell said that he believes Donald Trump is a gift from God. And it only went downhill from there. In the post election period, Mike Lindell became sort of a fixture on right wing media and various wacky, kooky podcasts saying, he has all the proof. It was stolen by Joe Biden and Dominion voting systems was a big part of it. He will now have to mount a legal defense. And if he really does have the proof that Dominion did whatever it is he thinks they did in the 2020 election, he's going to get the chance to prove it because that's what you get to do in defamation cases. Dominion is seeking more than one point three billion dollars in damages. The lawsuit says that Mike Lindell, quote, exploited false claims about election fraud to support his company's sales. And Mike Lindell has responded by saying, quote, I'm very happy that they've done this. I'm ready to go to court. I have all the evidence that anyone would ever want to see. Now, you might remember that in an interview with The New York Times uh, last month, early February, I believe it was in January. Lindell said he welcomes a lawsuit from Dominion. They had sent him a sort of legal letter warning him, if you don't stop, we will sue and we might sue anyway. And they have sued. And I guess we'll see how it all works out for Mike Pillow. Now, this is going to be <laughs> Mike Pillow. This is going to be fascinating because, as has been the issue with defamation lawsuits for a long time, defamation statutes have been a thing for a while. Uh, proving that what you said is true is a valid defense to defamation. If Mike Pillow's <laughs> allegations are true, it is by definition not defamation. Defamation can take two forms, slander or libel. Slander is uh, spoken defamation. Libel is written defamation. If Mike Pillow can prove that Dominion voting systems and again, it's hard to understand what he even claims. But if Mike Pillow can prove that they did whatever he claims that they did, he would be off scot free and wouldn't be liable for anything. Now, I love the idea of Mike having to go to court with his so-called evidence. But my guess is if I had to bet on it, that whatever lawyers Mike Lindell actually hires are going to tell him, Mike, the way to fight this is not to go to court and try to prove voter fraud. I can't imagine any serious lawyer would even take this case if the strategy is going to be we're going to go in there and prove that Dominion did 
whatever it is Mike Lindell claims that they did. It will either be pled out or settled. Mike Lindell might end up apologizing like Alex Jones has about I think it was Chobani yogurt or something like that. And it actually reminds me of if you think back to not that long ago, Trump's second impeachment, his first uh, cadre of lawyers quit. And one of the uh, bits of, of news that we got around that was that Trump wanted that first slate of attorneys to defend Trump by proving the election was stolen, therefore legitimizing or legitimating. Yes, that's a word uh, legitimizing the um, uh, inciting of the riot. And reportedly, Trump's first slate of lawyers said that's a crazy idea uh, word that that doesn't make sense. They ended up parting ways. But ultimately, Trump's legal team did not defend him by saying the election was stolen. They defended him by saying he didn't actually incite the riot. So um, we will follow this. Remember that Rudy Giuliani has also been sued by Dominion Voting Systems, and uh, we're going to follow it and see where this ultimately ends up. CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, is this weekend. It is going to be a uh, an amalgam of a disgusting cast of characters culminating on Sunday with a speech. Yes, from former President Donald Trump, his first on camera speech since leaving the White House more than a month ago. And we are going to be covering that live on Sunday. But CPAC is running into a little bit of a problem. CPAC, uh, it turns out, invited a speaker who goes by the name Young Pharaoh. And unfortunately, Young Pharaoh has said horribly anti-Semitic things, including completely harebrained, wacky, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs conspiracy theories. And Pharaoh, Young Pharaoh, has now been pulled as a speaker. The Daily Beast reports that Young Pharaoh once tweeted out, there is no historical or scientific evidence proving the existence of Jews or Judaism. It's all a complete lie made up for political gain. He also attacked fellow right wing uh, commentator Ben Shapiro for his Judaism, according to Media Matters. He also has conspiracies about uh, Pizzagate, the coronavirus vaccine and a whole bunch of other things, as reported by Eric Hanunoki. He, a young pharaoh in the past year, claimed that Judaism in itself is a, quote, complete lie, that the Jewish people are thieving and that all of the censorship and pedophilia, mind you, on social media is being done by Israeli Jews specifically. Um, He has now been pulled. Now, one of the funniest aspects of this, and it's funny in a way that's tragic, is that CPAC put out a statement saying, quote, we have just learned that someone we invited to CPAC has expressed reprehensible views that have no home with our conference or our organization. The individual will not be participating in our conference. The funny thing about that is it it essentially applies to everybody that is speaking at CPAC up to and including Donald Trump. I mean, look at look at the wording. Someone we invited expressed reprehensible views that Trump is at the absolute top of that list. So if they were going to go by that standard, um, CPAC would have to be canceled. What CPAC actually means is someone's reprehensible views went beyond being considered reprehensible only by the left. And even some people on the right consider these views reprehensible. So at this point, we really have no choice uh, but to cancel the speaking engagement of young Pharaoh. Now, speaking of cancellation, one of the new prominent memes on the right around free speech and suppression of speech is so-called left wing cancel culture, which includes, of course, at the micro level. And I'm doing my best to represent the, the hypothesis. Uh, left wing individuals, employers and organizations, quote, canceling people when they have the, quote, wrong opinion about things. 
and it goes up to and is inclusive of uh, Twitter at large, including its terms of service, big picture, YouTube, Facebook, basically anyone who has ever limited the ability of right wingers to continue publishing weaponized speech. Uh, including that which targets all sorts of different individuals based on membership in different protected classes. That's cancel culture, according to the right. But what's very funny, or maybe it's not funny, maybe it's just sad and ironic, is that uh, when uh, Fox News canceled Lou Dobbs because Lou Dobbs was giving a ridiculously uh, um, uh, not based in fact opinion about the election of uh, Joe Biden in November. Fox News said he's got to go and they canceled Lou Dobbs. And yet in the days following in all of the segments about cancel culture on Fox News and Newsmax and OAN, they didn't mention Lou Dobbs being canceled. Now, the right wing conservative political action conference has canceled a right wing commentator for his opinions. That's not part of the cancel culture even though they won't stop talking about Bill de Blasio this and Twitter that and Susan Wojcicki, Wojcicki uh, that other thing uh, based on what YouTube, Twitter or others are doing. So even the idea that they care about cancel culture is laughably untrue. They care only about instances of repercussions to speech that are politically advantageous for them. That's all it is. We have a voicemail number. That number is two one nine two David P. We talked earlier in the show about vaccine alarmism, which is different than anti-vax. Anti-vax is also a big problem from the standpoint of the coronavirus vaccine. Here is a caller who sounds like he's in a really tough situation with his parents at home. Take a listen to this. Hi, David. This is Christian from uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you could speak on the safety of the vaccine, because my parent, who's a clinical physician, has pretty much told me that if I take the vaccine, that they won't talk to me because they're so scared of it. And I mean, practically everyone I know is not taking the vaccine out of fear that it's rushed or that it's going to hurt them. I just I don't see how doctors can think this and it not be true. It is very scary that many healthcare workers, including doctors and nurses, are uncritically repeating some of the same debunked derogatory talking points about the vaccine that people who, you know, do research by looking at the articles shared by their crazy cousin on Facebook. Uh, Every single one of these claims has been debunked. The vaccine wasn't rushed. The mRNA based platform for making vaccines has been uh, in play for more than a decade at this point. And part of it is that once you have the platform in place, the individual vaccine takes far less time to develop. So that's one piece that's been answered. The question about vaccine safety there. Uh, I actually I have an exchange with an anti-vaxxer that I might publish soon via via email. Um, but one of the uh, talking points that they talk about is someone died during vaccine testing. And what they are referring to is an individual in Brazil who died of covid complications while part of the vaccine trial. It was later determined that they were in the placebo group. That individual did not even receive the vaccine. Very important to understand. And then in terms of long term effects, I mean, listen, we've talked about this before. You can always say there might be some effect uh, over a time period that is longer than the time period the vaccine has been out. If a vaccine has been out for 20 years, you could always say we don't know if the vaccine doesn't have negative long term effects that you only learn about after 21 years. If a vaccine has been out 50 years, you can say, what if the negative effects start after 51 years? What we do know uh, is that the um, negative effects that are known about vaccines uh, tend to happen uh, within the first couple of weeks. And that is it. And that historically there was a vaccine a long time ago that over the long term incre- increased your risk of um, uh, being diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I believe it changed it from a one in two million to one in one million. 
Uh, that is an old vaccine. I'm going from memory. I believe it was an early polio vaccine, although I may be wrong about that. Please don't hold me to it. And we know a lot about these things. So it's scary that a doctor is telling their kid, if you get vaccinated, I won't talk to you. Unfortunately, the virus of anti-vax has infected many areas of American society, and that's a very, very scary thing. But hopefully anti-vax sentiment will decline. It has been declining at one point in May of 2020. Sixty percent of the country said they weren't interested in the covid vaccine that dropped to 50, 40, 30. Latest numbers I saw are that about a quarter of the country doesn't want the vaccine and the number keeps declining with time. That's good. And hopefully as vaccine supply becomes available, vaccine interest will also increase. We've got a great bonus show for you today. California is going with their own covid relief package. Very interesting. We will discuss it. We also have new obstacles to the confirmation of Joe Biden's nominee Neera Tandon. This is a nominee I opposed from day one. And now it is actually looking like more and more of an uphill battle for Neera Tandon, thanks to a couple of Republicans. That's a good thing. I'll tell you why. And lastly, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has sounded a warning about Bitcoin. We will talk about that and much more on today's bonus show. Get instant access by becoming a member at joinpacman.com.